On Sunday evenings, we've been taking our time to look through different doctrines. Maybe by doctrines are just teachings, teachings of the church. And so we've started uh, back in January looking at the doctrines of Scripture. We've looked at the doctrine of God, who is God. And we've been looking at the last number of weeks, the doctrine of man, the teachings of the Bible concerning man. Who is man? What do you mean by man is humanity? Man and Male and female, we looked at that already. Uh, last week we looked at uh, the origin of sin. The week before that we looked at how we have inherited guilt and condemnation because of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. The Romans chapter 5. Tonight we're looking at the doctrine of man about total depravity. Okay, total depravity. This is an interesting doctrine because of really how, how the scriptures describe mankind. Uh, our world tells us that we are basically good. At least that's a Western idea. I think everyone else in the world recognizes that, that there is something wrong with the human heart. Most cultures around this world recognize that we have guilt and shame that must be dealt with, uh, whether that's sacrificing to God, whether that's um, sacrificing even children in some cultures around the world, in order to appease the gods because they understand because of their own sin that the gods must be angry with them. But here in the West, we have this idea that man is basically good. We're, we're just good and, and bad things can happen to good people and there's bad circumstances or influence that can make us uh, behave badly. But deep down inside, everyone is a good person. Now, that's not what the scripture teaches. And so what the scripture teaches is, has been summarized over the past centuries in this doctrine called total depravity. What I mean by depravity... We mean by the state of, of wickedness or moral corruption that we as human beings have an innate corruption within our nature and we call this original sin. Okay? Um, and we're going to look at the sinful nature of man here tonight. It's called depravity, it's moral corruption, and it's total. And we're going to look at what it means by um, total. What do they mean here by total depravity? So this sheet that you have before you is going to help you go through a number of scriptures. Okay, so point number one, we're going to actually say what total depravity is not. Okay, just get some misconceptions right off the bat dealt with. What total depravity is not. The first thing that total depravity is not, when we talk about original sin, we talk about the corruption within the nature of mankind. We don't mean is that men are incapable of any good actions. Okay, total depravity, that uh, we are sin, that we're born in iniquity, does not mean that we are incapable of any good actions. Okay, how, how can I say that? Romans 2, 14 and 15, you have the scriptures there to reference. It says, for when Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, who do not have the law, they didn't have the Old Testament scriptures, but for these Gentiles, non-Jews, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So God has given us his, his law, and even without the scriptures, we recognize God's moral framework that he's laid upon our own conscience. Okay? And so we're capable of good actions because God has placed 
our law on our hearts, even, even those who don't have the word of God. Matthew 23, 23 says this, Jesus speaking, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Okay, so what's he saying here? Saying you're hypocrites. You've you've taken these small points of the law and say, I'm going to obey this, but I'm going to neglect showing mercy and justice. I'm going to neglect love. And he goes, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have neglected those weightier matters of the law. Rather, you ought to have done them. You ought to have done your, your tithing of your dill, your mint and your cumin, and you ought to do those other things. So we see that in part, they were doing some good things in what they were tithing. But... It wasn't all good. And so they had accomplished some good action. So total depravity doesn't mean that someone is incapable of doing any good actions. Number two, total depravity is not, okay, that men are as bad as they can be. When we mean totally depraved, when the Bible talks about original sin, when the Bible talks about how we are sinners by nature, all of us are sinners, Okay, it does not mean that we are as bad as we can be. It's not what the total means in depravity. Romans one thirty two says this: Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Okay, this verse talks about how we know because of God's common grace to each and every one of us, we recognize God's righteous decree that if we break God's law, we will suffer judgment and punishment. And so often that keeps us from being as bad as we could be because we recognize God's judgment. We read in Romans 2, 14 and 15, how we have a conscience that God has given us. And so we're not as bad as we could be because our conscience prevents us from indulging on some of these Fancies that we might think might be a good idea. Okay, so God gives us a law in our own hearts to restrain evil in us. Not only that, but civil government restrains evil. Look at Romans 13, 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. It's talking about civil government. And so civil government is a restraining force in our world, in our society, to restrain sin. So we're not as bad as we could be. God has put certain restraints in this world to keep us as sinners from getting as bad as we could be. Okay, so that's not what total depravity means. Number three, It also doesn't mean that men are all equally corrupt. We say everyone's a sinner. We recognize that there is different levels of sin. Okay. Second Timothy 3.13 says this, while evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That is, there's, there's bad and then there's worse. And then there's even worse than that. Okay. So there's a different kinds of sin. And so total depravity does not mean that everyone is equally corrupt in their sinful nature. Okay, sometimes we've been 
taught a false notion or heard a false notion in church that, that sin, sin is sin. Whether you're a serial killer or whether you stole a pen from the office at work, you're a sinner and you're going to fall under God's condemnation for that sin. Okay, we recognize there's some truth to that. Okay, both are sins, but both are not the same kinds of sin. Both are not equal in terms of their corruption. No, both are not equal in terms of the justice and then the wrath of God that's going to be upon someone because of their sin. There's the degrees of sin. And there's degrees of corruption. Total depravity is not saying that everyone is on the same state of corruption. Okay? The fourth thing that total depravity is not doesn't mean that men have lost rational capabilities. Okay? We talk about total depravity. We're talking about a corruption that pervades our whole being, even our intellect. Our ability to reason and make decisions and to think is affected by sinfulness. It doesn't mean, though, because of our sinfulness, that we're not capable of rational thought. Romans 1.18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, in our sinfulness, we suppress the truth of God. And the passage continues, because we do not want to honor God or give thanks to him as God. And so we suppress the truth of God. And so we do things that are irrational in God's universe. But to be totally depraved doesn't mean that you're incapable of rational thought. For instance, we live in God's world. There are certain things about God's world that we cannot suppress. Someone can deny the law of gravity, but they cannot escape from it. Okay? They must use it and assume it as they walk. You know, they're not just going to roll out of bed and assume they're going to float up. Okay? They're going to put their feet down or else they're going to fall. So they, even if they say law of gravity doesn't exist, they're actually going to deny it in their actions. They're, they're going to show that it does exist. Just like people who say, I don't believe in God or his moral law. They cannot escape God's law. They still must operate in God's world. They must borrow from the Christian worldview, from Christian truth. If they're going to do anything, for instance, like logic or morality or rely on science, the uniformity of nature, all these things require God. Okay, even down to love and beauty and joy and rational discourse. The fact that you're hearing me right now is evidence of God. And so we cannot suppress the truth of God so much that we become completely irrational. That's what total depravity is about. Okay? So having said that, now you're probably wondering what is total depravity then? Okay? So what total depravity is? First thing about total depravity. It is our natural tendency is towards sin. Okay? Total depravity speaks to that our natural tendency is towards sin. As human beings born in sin, our natural tendency is to commit sin. We're in bondage to sin. That's what the Bible says. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's writing this to believers. He says, this is who you were. You were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were in bondage to sin as an unbeliever. We still have that corrupt nature within us, waiting for the glorification that awaits when Christ returns. By our nature, we're in bondage to sin. John 8, 31 to 34. 
Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word and you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been a slave to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? We're not enslaved. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Okay, so say we've never been enslaved. We've always been free. We're, 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 we're sons of Abraham. Jesus said, no, you were in bondage, in bondage of sin. But if you come to me and believe in me and believe the truth, then you'll be free. Free from sin and its bondage because our natural tendency is bent towards sin. Jeremiah 13, 23 says this, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? No. Our natural tendency is towards sin. Romans 3, 10 to 18 says this about the sinful man. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Okay, that's total. None is righteous. No, not even one. That's what the Bible says about the human race. Apart from the grace of God, this is who we are in our nature. This is who we are when you take off the makeup and the nice clothes that we put on. This is what it looks like when you have our hearts exposed. Sinfulness, not seeking God, not righteous. That's how the Bible describes us. This natural bent towards sin, away from God, away from recognizing his lordship, away from recognizing his greatness, not wanting to give thanks to him, not wanting to honor him, not wanting to love him. That's what we mean by total depravity. Tendency towards sin. Number two, total depravity, the total part of it means that sin pervades all our being. Sin pervades all our being. What we mean by total depravity is it affects our minds, it affects our bodies, it affects our wills, our desires, our affections. Uh, everything about us is tainted, affected by sin. Sin is not just like a, a bad fingernail that I can cut off and be done with. Or, or deep down inside, I'm really a good person, but, but I have these other things that are making me sin. No. Total depravity, what the Bible says about sinfulness is it reaches down to the very depths of our core. Through and through, we are sinners. Ephesians 4, 17 and 19 says this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Okay, sin has corrupted their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Okay, their minds, their hearts have been affected. Verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy to, ev- greedy to practice every kind of impurities. Now, not only has sin affected their minds and their hearts, but now their hands and their bodies have been given over to sin and to sensuality. Completely taken over by sin. Romans 8, 5 to 7 says this, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. 
But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Okay, so there's something wrong with with the mind here being set on the flesh, on what is physical, on what is corrupted, rather than on the spirit. Sin affects the mind. Titus 1.15, it says this, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So even by total depravity, your whole being is defiled by sin. It's corrupted all of us. Even our hearts, Jeremiah 79, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then Genesis 6, 5 says this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We haven't progressed since Genesis 6, 5. We have the same nature as those men in Genesis 6 that suffered from Noah's flood have today. Every intention and thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. This is the natural state of man apart from the grace and the goodness and the mercy of God. This is what the Bible says, who we are by nature apart from God's grace. Okay, the third thing I want you to understand about total depravity. Total depravity also means that our spiritual state is one of being dead. To be totally depraved means that you are spiritually dead. Not just injured, not just you got a mortal wound, not just it doesn't look good, it's bleak. No, you're spiritually dead. That's what the scriptures define. We read, already read Ephesians 2, 1, 3, let me read it to you again. It says this, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is not just a select few, not just a few in the church. You guys were exceptionally bad. You know, you guys who were who were out and, and were, were into the hard drugs and you've killed some people, you've been in, you served jail time. That's who I'm talking about here. No, all of us were dead in our trespasses sins. All of us were following Satan. All of us were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were dead. Romans 8.10 says this, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So total depravity means that we are spiritually dead, unresponsive to spiritual things because we're dead spiritually. We can still walk, we can still talk, we can still go on sinning, we can still go on living. You know, we look alive, you know, you poke me and blood will come out, but spiritually dead. That's what you mean by total depravity. Now the fourth thing we're going to look at, this is actually the, the last thing we're going to look at. Okay. Before we handle some questions. The fourth thing about total depravity. And this one is probably the most controversial. All right, save it for, save it for last. Number four. There is an inability to love God, to please Him, or even to profess saving faith. Total depravity 
means that we are so corrupt, so spiritually dead, so affected by sin that we have an inability to love God, to please him or to profess saving faith. Now that total depravity sounds kind of total. All right. And I want to show you these scriptures that teaches this truth because many would reject this because, well, it doesn't put us as mankind in a very good spot, uh, having an inability to love God, to please him, or even to profess faith. Remember, apart from his grace. Let's look at this. First Corinthians 2, 14, where we get this from. It says the natural person. Now, first Corinthians 2 talks about the natural person. It's talking about the person without the spirit. Okay, us in our natural state. We're not, we don't, we're not born into this world, born again spiritually. Okay, but we're natural. The natural person, it says, does not accept the things of the spirit of God. Why? For they are folly to him. They're foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The natural person has an inability to understand the things of God. Okay, so it says, unable to understand because they're spiritually discerned. Now, this chapter talks about how the Spirit has revealed these things to the apostles. Now, the prophets, the apostles are now telling this to church. And if you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not able to understand the truth that they are conveying and to receive it and to believe in Christ. Okay? How does one go from a, a natural person to one who, who recognizes the beauty of Christ, who recognizes the wonders of the gospel, who recognizes their need to cry out to Christ in saving faith? According to this person, you must have spiritual discernment. The spirit must be working in your heart. In your natural state, you can't. Not able to understand. That's what total depravity means. Now, that's the words of Paul. Listen to the words of Jesus. John six forty four. Jesus says this, again, speaking to crowds, he says this, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. Jesus says, no one can come to me. No one has the ability to come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, the disciples are intrigued by this thought. And they think, well, this doesn't sound quite right. And so they speak to him later on. Now, look at, I have verse 60 to 65 on there too. It says this, when many of the disciples heard it, they said to him, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Because it takes the work of the Spirit. So no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. Jesus explains what he means by that. Romans 8, 7 and 8. It says this, 
For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, the context of this passage, how can someone go from not being able to obey God's law, not being able to love him, not being able to, to respond to him, requires the spirit. Those who have the spirit of God love God and profess faith in him and follow his law and please him. Okay, but here we see an inability of ourselves in our natural state to do what is pleasing to God. Cannot please God in the flesh. Romans 3.11, read this verse already. No one seeks for God. We don't seek for him. We can't please him. We can't respond to him. We're spiritually dead. Hebrews 11.6 says this. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must do what? Must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so even, even to draw near to God, what is required before that? Belief in him. To believe that he exists. To believe that he rewards those who seek him. So apart from faith, it's impossible to please him. Okay, there's, there's no love for God in the spiritually dead person. This is who we are in a natural state. This is what the Bible teaches about total depravity and the effects of original sin. An inability to please God, to obey his commands, and to profess saving faith in him. Now, because that one's controversial, we have a few questions. The first question is this. And who can be saved? Who can be saved if man is that corrupt that we are like a dead corpse and the gospel is being proclaimed, how then can anyone be saved? How can anyone respond? If we cannot, we have an inability to come to him. We have an inability to do what's pleasing to him. Inability to respond to him in saving faith. How can anyone be saved? Well, a few passages. Mark 10, 26 to 27. The disciples asked the same question. They were exceedingly astonished. Oh, Jesus said the rich young ruler. And they said to Jesus, then who can be saved? Oh, this is the perfect candidate for someone to be saved. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible. But with God, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Okay, this slogan, all things are possible with God, you, you see it on, on, on athletic posters and camp posters and stuff. Well, you can do anything with God, okay? But the context of this text, anything that's possible with God is talking about salvation. How salvation is impossible for man. Why? Because we're totally depraved. Inability to come to him. We're spiritually dead. Okay, salvation is impossible for man, but not with God. Okay, God is the one who saves. We ask, who can be saved? Well, anyone can be saved because God is the one who is going to save. John 1, 12 and 13 says this, but to all who did receive him, all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born. Okay, how did they receive him? Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God is the one who gives people the new birth, gives them eyes to see. And we see this in John 3, 3. Jesus answered Nicodemus and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see 
the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, Jesus says, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's an inability to even recognize God's gracious kingdom unless one is born again. He says, Nicodemus, don't you know this? You're teacher of Israel. Okay, so how can someone who is completely depraved, completely spiritually dead, experience new life? It's because God is going to do a work in our hearts to grant us life. And this is a consistent testimony of scripture. This is what what. Um, Ezekiel was told to do when he told to, to go to the valley of dry bones and to proclaim the gospel to these dry bones. What we see in these dry bones, these dead, um, rotting, no more flesh on these bones, he's been dead for a long time. The bones begin to move and we see cartilage and flesh begin to appear in these bones and then they're alive because the power of the gospel wasn't in them. What do you see in Lazarus when Jesus commands him to come forth? It wasn't Lazarus' ability. He couldn't. He was dead. Couldn't respond. But we see the power of God when he creates life from the dead. And this is what happens when someone is saved. God grants them new life. They are born again. And they are born again. And the first thing we do when we come from mother's womb, being born in the flesh, we cry. The first thing we do when we've been born again by the Holy Spirit, we cry. We cry out in faith to God and repentance and trust in him. And we cling to him and we never stop clinging to him. Because we've been born of God. That's the testimony of scripture about who can be saved. It's the wonderful work of regeneration. Being born again. The second question. Why would God do this? Why would God create us as totally depraved? Why would God create us with such corruption in our nature? Such that we cannot even seek him. Why would he do that? Well, Scripture helps us out. John 9, 1 to 3. And this is a related passage, not directly to the topic, but it's, it's helpful. It says this, as he, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And the disciples asked Jesus and said this, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Okay, see a blind man it must have been his own sin that caused this kind of judgment to come upon him. Or it must have been the sin of his parents. There's some reason why he is corrupted in this way, why he's suffering from this physical disability. It must be because of sin. What does Jesus say? He said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And this is going to go on. We're going to see why did God make us or why does why does god choose in part of his plan to have these completely corrupted individuals like you and i be totally depraved so the works of god may be displayed in us first corinthians 1 28 31 says this god chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of god and because of him you are in Christ Jesus. Not because of what you've done, but because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There's no room for boasting. We were dead. We're dead like Lazarus. We've been called forth from the grave, granted new life because of the work of God's spirit. He became to us wisdom and righteousness and justification and sanctification. 
This was the work of God so that no one can boast. Our only boast is in him. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace, it says, unmerited favor. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Okay, you didn't do this. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Why did God do this? Why did he make us as sinners? Why does he let this go on? So that no one can boast. So we can marvel at his greatness. And Ephesians 1, 6 says this. God did it all to the praise of his glorious grace. It maximizes the glory of God to take spiritually dead sinners, unresponsive, unable to seek him, unable to please him. And he goes in there through other faithful servants as they proclaim the gospel of Christ. And we see new hearts, hearts being changed, hearts being transformed because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And God receives all the glory. No room for boasting. We can't boast about our salvation. We can't even say God did 99% of it, but I did one little 1% or I was that decisive factor. No, not at all. It was from God. Salvation is of the Lord from first to last. Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. The Alpha and Omega. Our salvation is completely due him. And so he deserves all the glory, all the honor and all the praise. And that's why God has done it this way. Let's pray.